Our subject for this evening is the ultimate king. And we're going to go back to a book that we've already visited, and that is the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at an amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel that foretold the coming of Christ the first time. And it's just incredible. I love this prophecy. It is so accurate. It is so fascinating to see that the Word of God, hundreds of years in advance, actually foretold the coming of Jesus when he came here 2,000 years ago. So we're going to look at that. But uh, as way of introduction here, I just want to introduce you to a couple of prophecies throughout the Old Testament that deal with Jesus, that deal with the coming Messiah, the promised one. Now, there have been skeptics that have said, you know what, yeah, you might say that there are prophecies that uh, predicted um, uh, the coming of a Messiah, but, but didn't Jesus just know these prophecies and then he just lived up to these prophecies? And so he basically just wanted to be the Messiah and he read what the Messiah would be like and so he acted like the Messiah. Well, you might get away with some prophecies that you could read and try to live up to, but there are certain prophecies that you cannot control. Uh, well, at least from a natural point standpoint. For example, you cannot decide um, which family you are born into. Uh, none of you decided that, right? You didn't decide where you were born. You didn't decide when you were born. And there are prophecies in the Old Testament that deal with where Jesus was born, for example. He was born in Bethlehem. That's a prophecy in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We read the fulfillment in the book of Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. There are prophecies about the circumstances of the birth of Jesus, that he was born uh, from a virgin, um, the virgin birth. Uh, we have the prophecy regarding which tribe he would come from. He would come from the tribe of Judah. And so we have these prophecies that then find their fulfillment in the New Testament. There are prophecies regarding the family of Jesus. He would come from the lineage of David, King David. Uh, we're going to look particularly tonight at the one in Daniel chapter 9 that deals with the timing of Jesus' first coming. And then, of course, you have prophecies regarding the message that he would proclaim, as is written in Isaiah chapter 61. Prophecies concerning the circumstances of, um, of, of, of his ministry, when he would enter, how he would enter into Jerusalem, and regarding his betrayal, and the very price that was paid for his betrayal. These are all prophecies that you find throughout the Old Testament, and you find a fulfillment in the New Testament. We have prophecies concerning the circumstances of his betrayal and his death and how he would die. Very interesting. Um, also regarding uh, details like that his bones would not be broken, that he would be resurre his resurrection and the very, again, the very timing of his death. So, um, of course, we don't have time tonight to go into all of these prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. And so we have uh, chosen one that we're going to look at more, more specifically, and that's in the book of Daniel chapter 9. But, you know, there was a study done by a Canadian mathematician in 1958. And um, he uh, wrote a book called Science Speaks. And in this book, he, he, he did this study on the prophecies in the Old Testament related to Jesus. And so in this book, he takes 48 of the messianic prophecies and he calculates mathematically what the probability is of these prophecies fulfilling in one man. 
So think about it. You take 48 prophecies. What is the likelihood of all of them fulfilling in one person? Now, there are more than 48 prophecies in the Old Testament. There are several hundred, actually. But he took just 48 of them. He said, what is the probability of 48 of these prophecies fulfilling in one person? And the mathematical calculation of that, um, he concluded that it was 10 to the 157th power. So uh, that's a number that looks like this. I counted all the zeros. Now, in other words, it is very, 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 very unlikely that so many prophecies could all be fulfilled in one person. In other words, there's something supernatural about it. There's something supernatural that we have so many prophecies in the Old Testament that actually fulfilled in the person Jesus Christ. Now, what is fascinating to me, as a lo I, I love history, and what is fascinating is that not only do we have the history about Jesus in this book that we call the Bible, which is a book that is made up of 66 books, and it is uh, written over a time span of about 1,500 years, about 40 different authors, um, and here we have a record of the history leading up to Jesus, and also the history of the world after the coming of Jesus and into the first century. But, but not only do we have here a record of the life of Jesus, but did you know that there are also um, extra biblical, so outside of the Bible, sources that actually talk about the person Jesus? Uh, one of them, for example, is Cornelius Tacitus, which is quite a well-known uh, Roman historian, or we know a lot about Roman history based on his writings. And listen to what he says about the person Jesus. And this can be dated back to, again, the first century here. And uh, he's not in favor of this growing movement of Christianity. Uh, and he says the following, Christians derived their name from a man called Christ who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the pro, uh, procurator Pontius Pilate. Now, this is familiar language for us. These are individuals that we find in the biblical text of the New Testament. He goes on, he says, the deadly superstition, he calls it a deadly superstition, this, this Christian movement that is coming out of this. Um, he says, it was checked for the moment, but it broke out afresh, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Now, obviously, from his perspective, he's not in favor of the Christian movement. But isn't it interesting that if we look at someone that is not in favor of the Christian movement, still they are confirming the fact that it happened that there was a man by the name of Jesus and that he was judged by Pilate. And he mentions other rulers at that time. And so this movement of Christianity, not only do we have a record of it in the New Testament, but we also have a record of it in secular history. Now, I could share with you quite a number of quotations. I just chose two for this evening. The first was from Tacitus. The second that I want to share with you is actually, maybe uh, some of you are familiar with this name, uh, Flavius Josephus. He was quite a well-known uh, Jewish historian. Now, now, he's a little bit more... Um, in favor of this movement, but he's not quite sure if Jesus is the Messiah, as you will see from what he writes here. He writes the following, at this time, and, and here we're again in the first century, uh, at this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. 
He was, and listen to the words here, he was perhaps, perhaps the Messiah Christ. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. For they reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. That's a very interesting quote from a Jewish historian in the first century, revealing the very things that we read about when we open our New Testament. And so as we, as we begin this journey together this evening, we see that there are a lot of prophecies within the Old Testament that, that are predicting the coming of a Messiah, and we see how these prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, and then we can even take a further step back and we can look at secular historians that are also talking about the person of Jesus and the events that they, mat, that they mention match with the story in the New Testament. So don't let anyone tell you today that this whole story about Jesus is a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. As a matter of fact, there is more historical there's a better historical base to confirm the existence of Jesus than many other historical per people that we mention and we have no doubt that they, are, that they existed. And so we have a good foundation, a good historical foundation to actually believe this incredible story of the Bible and the incredible story of Jesus Christ. And so I want to take you to a prophecy found in the book of Daniel. And what is interesting is that we as, as, as a modern people living in 2019 can kind of look back and we, have, and we have a history behind us that we can look back on and we can see how the story played out. The story of the Jews and the Israelites and the story of the Messiah and, and, and the story of the early church. And so it is a privilege for us to live at this time and to be able to look back and to study prophecy. And some of the prophecies that we actually study are historic prophecies. They were, they were given at a, at a, in a history, but they also fulfilled in history. And this actually confirms our faith in the Bible. Because if we look at historic prophecies that have already been fulfilled, that actually gives us faith that the prophecies that are still in the future for us will also one day be fulfilled. So uh, let's take a look at this prophecy uh, in Daniel chapter 9. In order to understand the prophecy, we need a little bit of historic background. Now, I think I mentioned it uh, already on the second night when we looked at the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. The story of Daniel begins with a defeat, a defeat of the Hebrew nation or the Israelites. They are, they are under the power of Babylon. Babylon has invaded the country. Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He has taken a lot of the Jews with him back to Babylon. Among those that were carried into captivity was Daniel and his friends that are mentioned there in chapter one. And uh, this is the context. This is where the story starts. They have lost their kingdom. And and here they are in captivity. Now, the fascinating thing is that there was a prophet that lived at that time when Babylon was invaded, and his name was Jeremiah. And there's actually a book in the Old Testament named after him, and it's the book that he wrote. And in the book of Jeremiah, you can read about Jeremiah's prediction that they would go to, that they would be taken to Babylon. And Jeremiah actually gives us a time period that they would be in Babylon. He says that they would be there for 70 years. 
And this is exactly what happened. They were in Babylon for 70 years. And after that, they were allowed to return. Uh, and this was under the, um, under the rulership of Medo-Persia that had now conquered Babylon. And under the rulership of Medo-Persia, the authority of Medo-Persia, they were able to return in order to rebuild the temple and the city. And where we pick up our story tonight, we, are, we have come to the very, um, the very moment that they're about to return. We've come to the time where uh, Medo-Persia has now conquered Babylon. And now the, the Jews are about to return to rebuild their city. And Daniel is no longer that young man that was taken captive when he was, you know, in his late teens. He is now an old man and he is reflecting upon everything that has happened. He's been many, many years in Babylon and he is now anticipating that his people are going to return in order to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And so in Daniel chapter 9, he is actually praying for his people. And he realizes they're at a very important juncture in history. They are about to return, and he knows it's very important that as they return, that they are one with God, because the whole reason why they were in captivity is because things had gone very bad. They had, they had lost their focus. They had turned away from their God-given call. They had lost their identity. They were living um, uh, like the other nations. And, and God in his mercy had, had withdrawn his protection from them, al allowing them to go into captivity to actually get their attention and call them back to himself. And now basically they're going to get a new chance to go back and rebuild the city. And Daniel is praying for his people. Actually, Daniel chapter 9, the very chapter that we're going to look at together, and if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Daniel chapter 9. We, we, we read about the prayer that Daniel prays for his people. Actually, uh, a, a huge part of this chapter is the very prayer of Daniel for his people. So take notice of Daniel chapter 9, and uh, just look there at the very beginning of, of the chapter. We'll, we'll pick it up right there in verse 1. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. And the Bible says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the prophet, uh, by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. This is very interesting. So what Daniel is doing is he's, he's calculating, hey, we've been here 70 years. The prophet Jeremiah said we'll be, we'll, we'll be here 70 years. We are about to return. The prophecy it has ended. The period that we're going to be in Babylon has ended. Now look at what he says right Right after that, verse three, verse three, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Now, what he's doing in his prayer is he's saying, God, you are faithful to your covenant. And this is the key word I want you to remember, because we're going to come back to that in our study tonight. The word covenant. I think I spoke about the covenant already on night number one. 
I mentioned it also yesterday. And when you look at the whole theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there's this one theme that comes back again and again and again, and it is the theme of the covenant. Now, what does it mean? What does a covenant mean? A covenant is a relation between two parties. God wants to enter into a covenant with his people, with you and me, and with his people in the past. And this covenant is that God says, I want to be faithful from my side to fulfill all my promises that I've given, and I want you to be faithful to trust me and to receive me into your life. And so God said to the people of Israel, I want to enter into this covenant with you. The people of Israel broke the covenants. They turned their backs on God. That's the reason why they were in captivity. And now they're about to return and, and God wants again to, to renew this covenant with them. And when Daniel is praying, he knows that this is an important moment for the history of his nation. They're about to return. They're about to have a new start, but they must be faithful to God's covenant. And so he is actually, what he's doing here, when you read the prayer in Daniel chapter 9, he is confessing the sins of his people. He says, we have committed sins. We have done wickedly, but God, you are awesome. You are faithful. And as he's praying, and we don't have time to read the whole prayer, but you can, you can do that for yourself later. It's a beautiful, wonderful prayer. And as he is in this prayer, in the very prayer, there is an angel that visits him. It is the angel Gabriel, which you read about in different places in the Bible, a very important angel that comes to Daniel with a very answer, the very answer to his prayer. How many, of you, how many of you have prayed and at times you wish you, an angel would just show up? Wouldn't that be awesome? You're praying and, and there's something important you want to know or some direction in your life. Wouldn't it just be amazing while you're praying to have, the visit, to have an angel visit you, to give some clarification, to give some guidance? This is exactly what happens to Daniel. He is praying and an angel shows up. Look at verse 21 and 22. It says, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. You see, Daniel is, 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 in, is, is a little bit perplexed. He doesn't know how everything, what, what is going to happen to his people. They've been here in captivity for 70 years. What is the future going to be like? God is awesome. God is faithful. God keeps his covenant. But, but the people have not been keeping the covenant. And he's praying for his people and wondering what the future is going to hold. And then the angel comes and says, I'm going to give you skill to understand. I'm going to give you an understanding of what is going to happen to your people. Okay, now take notice of the next verse, Daniel 9 and verse 24. And this is the prophecy that is given to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. So a time period is given to the people of Daniel. Now, who are the people of Daniel? These are the, this is the Jewish nation, right? So his people, and they are given a period of 70 weeks. And what is to happen within that 70 weeks? Well, if you just sum it up in a very simple language, what is to happen in that 70 weeks is that they have to turn around because they were on the wrong course. They had broken the covenant. That's the reason why they were in captivity. Now they are being given a new chance they have to turn around in order to turn towards God, towards this beautiful relationship with God, and they are given a period, a renewed start, 
And this period is going to last for 70 weeks. Now, this is interesting. There's, there's a principle that we need to understand, and we're going to establish it right now, and it's going to be helpful for us also in future nights when we study Bible prophecy. Now, this is the principle. Take notice of this. In Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. Now, this is not something that I made up. This is actually something that you can even find in the Bible itself in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, and Numbers 14, verse 34. This is a principle that you can apply to uh, prophecies in the book of Daniel and Revelation. Now, and so it's given in kind of coded, coded language. In, a, in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. Now, I've had people ask me many times, why is it done that way? Why doesn't it just say straight out the, the amount of time, or why is it given in coded language? And I can think of at least two, two reasons why. Uh, reason number one is that when the Bible was written, you need to understand that it was written in the context, in the historical context of, 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 of nations that were not necessarily in favor of the, the content of the prophecy. Now, in other words, Daniel is in Babylon, right? He's in Medo-Persia. He's, he's also writing about the fall of these empires. Later in the book of Revelation, in the last book of the Bible, John is writing a lot about the powers and rulers of his day. And in order for these books to be preserved, in order for these books not to be destroyed when they were first written, and actually to be passed down and, and, uh, and um, uh, available for us in 2019, certain things were written in codes. Now, it wasn't written in codes so that no one could understand, but it was written in codes so that the, the, the text itself was protected, but at the same time, God has made it easy enough for us to decode it because he's given the very principles of how to decode it in the text itself. Now, and the second reason I can think of is God wants us to study our Bibles. And you know, you know what? Um, you will appreciate gold more when you dig for it than when it drops into your lap. Amen? So, so there's another reason for us to actually to, to go into the text and to figure it out because we are actually engaging our minds and, and being led by the very Spirit of God that inspired this book. So let's then look at this. If in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year, which is a principle we're gonna, that you can apply to a number of prophecies, and every time it matches fascinatingly accurately. So, so uh, this, this is a principle that's well established within Bible prophecy. If that's true, in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year, what time period are we actually looking at when we're talking about 70 prophetic weeks? Now, we have to do a little bit of um, a, a little calculation here, a bit of math here. I was never good at maths in school. I hated it. I didn't like it. But uh, this one, I, I can figure it out. It's not that hard. If you have 70 weeks... Um, you're talking about 490 days, right? 70 weeks, 7 times 70 is 490. So if you have 70 prophetic weeks and a one uh, uh, prophetic day equals a literal year, you have 490 years. Are you with me on that? Okay, so, four, so 70 prophetic weeks would be 490 literal days, but if you then apply the day-year principle, you would have 490 years. Now, 490 years are given to the people of Daniel, to the Jewish nation, 490 years. Now, the beginning date or the beginning of this prophetic period of time, we learn in the text itself in Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to get there in just a moment, 
but the beginning date would be the command to restore Jerusalem. So when the command to restore Jerusalem would go out, which makes sense because that's the restart, right? They've been in captivity 70 years. They're going to go back. They're going to restart building and they're going to have a new start. And they're going to be given a period of 490 years from the, re from the command to rebuild the city, which was given in 457 BC. And so you start counting the 70 prophetic weeks or the 490 years from 457 BC and where you end up is in the year 34 AD. Now you might ask what happened in 34 AD? In 34 AD, um, this is a story you can read about in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, which is the story right after the Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which deal with the life of Jesus. And then you have the book of Acts, which deals with the early church, the first disciples that were sent out to preach and teach and, and proclaim the good news. And in the story of Acts, you will read about a man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was stoned to death. And the story is recorded there in chapter 7. And it's interesting because there was a man that was standing and looking at the stoning of Stephen. And it was a man by the name of Saul. Saul persecuted the church. Later, he had a conversion. He became Paul. And he started preaching the gospel to many different nations. Now, it was the first Christian martyr. Think about that. The Jews have been given a new start. They've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Now they've been given a new start. They're going to start all over again. And in this period, what God wants is to establish a covenant with them. He, he tries it again and again and again through prophets and, and then through the Messiah that he sent. And then the Messiah was rejected and crucified. But even after Jesus was crucified, they still had a couple of years left to turn around as a nation and to establish the covenant with God. But then when the, when the year 34 comes, 34 AD, and they stoned Stephen to death, that was the marking point when the prophecy ended. And it's interesting because from that very time, from 34 AD onward, the gospel started going to the other nations. You see it very clear in the book of Acts. From the stoning of Stephen, right, you get right into the next chapter, chapter 8. It's the conversion of Saul, uh, and he becomes Paul. And then what the rest of the story in the New Testament, the gospel going to all the nations. Very fascinating. Now, there were some things that were going to happen within this prophetic 70 weeks, or the 490 years. Take notice what the Bible says about what would take place within this period. Uh, we're in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. It says, Now th know therefore and understand, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, so here he's mentioning the Messiah that is going to come, until Messiah the Prince, there, will be, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So the prophecy is given, the whole prophecy is 70 weeks, but within the 70 weeks, there was going to, a time period is given, and that is the 7 and the 62 weeks, or 69 weeks combined, then that would lead us up to the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is interesting. The word Messiah means the anointed one. So what, the Gabriel, uh, what Gabriel is saying to Daniel, the angel is saying to Daniel that, that within this period that is given to the Jewish nation, the anointed one is going to come. 
the anointed one is going to come. And the anointed one is going to come after seven weeks, which was mainly dedicated to the rebuilding of the city, the 49 years. And then another 62 prophetic uh, weeks would be added to that, which makes a time period combined of 483 years. And that would bring us to the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, a little bit of calculation here. From the rebuilding of the command to rebuild the city, 457 BC, if you count 69 prophetic weeks, which would be, if you apply the day-year principle, you have 483 years, it brings you to the year AD 27. AD 27. Now, uh, and, and if, you, if, you, if you're a little bit lost at the moment, you say, oh, I didn't get you on that one. Think about this. If 70 prophetic weeks is 490 years, then 69 weeks is one week less or seven years less with the day-year principle, right? So you're 483 years after the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, what happened in AD 27? In AD 27, that was the very year that Jesus was baptized. Now, you might think, yeah, but uh, I'm not so sure about that because wasn't Jesus, didn't he die when he was 33? And, and uh, so his baptism was three and a half years before that. So, so how, do we, how do we make that, uh, how does that make sense? Well, uh, biblical scholars and historians will both agree that our current uh, timeline is a little bit off on a few years. Jesus, in other words, was not born in, 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 in the year zero. Uh, uh, and so it's, it's a few years off, but... The year 27 AD can actually be established based on other historical accounts. Because in the Gospel book of Luke, we actually have an account of the baptism of Jesus. And the interesting thing is that when Jesus was baptized, which is revealed there in Luke chapter 3, in the same chapter, it lists a number of rulers that ruled at the very time that Jesus was baptized. Now take notice of this, Luke chapter 3 and verse 1 it says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. And, and so all these rulers are listed in the book of Luke. And Luke, by the way, he was a physician, and he is uh, very occupied with details. And so this is not just a story of, oh, Jesus came along, John the Baptist came along, uh, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, okay, we go on. No, he says, this guy was ruling there, this guy was ruling there, this guy was ruling there. And as a historian, you're like, ah, this is good stuff. Because if that guy is over there in the 15th year, and that guy is ruling over there, and that guy is ruling over there, I have all these markers that say, okay, now I can figure out what year we're in. And when you figure it out, it's the year 27 AD. That was the year, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, historically. And so within this framework of what is happening here in Luke chapter 3 and all the rulers that are ruling in different places, in this framework, he talks about the baptism of Jesus. In verse 21 and 22, he says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized. You know, when Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him, this was what it's talking about when it refers to the anointing, the anointing of the Spirit. 
Messiah means the anointed one. When was Jesus anointed? He was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. His baptism was the beginning of his earthly ministry that lasted for three and a half years. So he was baptized, he ministers for three and a half years, and then he died on the cross, he was crucified. What you read in your gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is predominantly the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. From his baptism, we don't know a lot about his upbringing, we don't know a lot about his childhood, but he comes on the scene, he's baptized, he's ministering, and he dies on the cross, and then he resurrects. That's what we really know, the bulk of the information in the New Testament. And so here we are, just to give you an overview. I hope I haven't lost you. I know that this is a little bit of a complex prophecy, but, but once you see the puzzle, piece, puzzle pieces falling together, it's an incredible picture. Daniel is living hundreds of years before Christ. He is wondering what's going to happen to his people. He is wondering what's going to happen when they return from Babylon. The angel Gabriel comes to him and says, you know what? Your people will be given a new chance. They can go back. They're going to rebuild the city. They're going to be given 70 prophetic weeks. They're going to be given 490 years to make things right, to establish the covenant with God. But then he says, but it, and within this period, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to come after 69 prophetic weeks or after 483 years, the Messiah, the anointed one will come. And we look at the command to restore Jerusalem in 457 BC. We count 483 years. We come to the year 27 AD. Jesus is baptized right on time. Can you say amen? What a fascinating, fascinating prophecy within the book of Daniel regarding the coming of Jesus. But that's not all. Not only does Daniel chapter 9 predict the baptism of Jesus, the anointing of the Messiah, but the prophecy also predicts his death on the cross. Take notice what it says. Now, now according to the prophecy here, um, when we are 69 weeks into the prophecy, how many, how many prophetic weeks do we have left? If there are 70 prophetic weeks and we're 69 weeks into the prophecy, how many weeks do we have left? One week. Okay, if we apply the day-year principle, how many days are there in a week? Seven. So how many years do we have left? Seven years. Now, keep that in mind. We have seven years left. Now look at the next passage. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 and he shall confirm a, here's the key word, covenant. He shall confirm a covenant with many for how long? For one week. This is the remaining week. But in the middle of the week, what is the middle of the week? If you have seven, what is the middle of seven? Three and a half. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to what? Sacrifice and offering. Now, what was sacrifice and offering all about? Wasn't that a very prophecy of the coming Messiah? Every time they slew the lamb and they sacrificed the lamb, it was a picture of the lamb of God that would come, that would be sacrificed, that would be slain, that would die for us. Amen? So when Jesus comes, you know, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb. And in the midst of the last prophetic week of Daniel 9, in the midst of that week, after three and a half years, Jesus died. And you know what happened when he died? You can read it in the, in the account of Matthew. Uh, you can read it there in chapter 27, when, or chapter 26, 27. When Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, down in the temple in Jerusalem, they were about to slay the Passover lamb. And guess what? The veil of the temple was ripped in two by an angel, signifying that there was no longer need of sacrifice of a lamb because the lamb had come. 
Amen? The Lamb had come. And he confirmed the covenant with many for one week. And in the middle of the week, after three and a half years, he brought an end to sacrifice and offering. He was crucified on the cross. If you count from AD 27, three and a half years, you are in the year AD 31. Historians, Bible scholars will agree this is the year that Jesus died on the cross, AD 31. Now, the interesting thing about this whole prophecy is that even when the Jewish nation crucified their Messiah, that God still gave them another three and a half years. He still gave them time of mercy to turn around. As a matter of fact, the very place where Jesus was crucified was the very place that he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. Isn't God mercifully? merciful in his ways and he caused the the early disciples the disciples to go out and, and where did they proclaim the message first oh it was in jerusalem it was to give the people of god another chance to turn around and praise god many did turn around on the day of pentecost how, how what, what happened three thousand were baptized amen in the book of acts you read of the story in chapter two thousands and thousands came to the faith and many received the savior but sadly the religious leaders they refused this, they, they rejected the truth, they, 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 they worked against this great revival, and it was not long after, in the year AD 34, that they stoned Stephen to death. And that was the marking point, that the prophecy of Daniel 9 ended, and the message started to go to the non-Jews. Right after chapter, uh, into chapters 8, 9, and 10, and onward in the book of Acts, you will read about how the gospel is being spread to the various nations. And that was always the intent of God. From the very beginning, the gospel was always to go through the na to the nations through the Jewish nation, but the Jewish nation, sadly, they kept things for themselves. And sadly, they didn't keep the covenant of God at least not on a, on, a, on a national scale, though there were, of course, individual faithful people all along, but on a national scale, the leaders of, 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 the, of the nation rejected this message. But God still had a plan, and his plan always succeeds. What do you say? And he used his disciples and others that came to the faith, and he, and he sent them out, and they preached the gospel. Um, uh, and, and this was exactly what Jesus uh, proclaimed and, and prophesied would take place. Right before he ascends in, in Acts chapter 1, he says, you wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and when it comes, you will proclaim this message in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then, in Samaria, and then he says, into the uttermost parts of the world. And here we are in America. <laughs> and, you know, I live in Norway, and I grew up in New Zealand. Well, the message has gone to the uttermost parts of the world. Amen? Now, we talked a little bit yesterday about how, why the Messiah was rejected. It really had to do with a misunderstanding of the role of the Messiah. They misunderstood uh, his kingdom, because we talked about a little bit about this yesterday evening, that, that Jesus came and he proclaimed the kingdom of grace, the way that we are to live in anticipation of the final kingdom of glory when he comes the second time. But many of the Jews, they had been reading the prophecies of the kingdom of glory, and they wanted a Messiah that would overthrow the Roman uh, suppression and that would establish a kingdom in the here and now. And that's not what Jesus came to do. And so they rejected him. They had false expectations. They rejected him, and he ended up on a cross. But we have so many indications in the New Testament that the kingdom that God came to proclaim 
the kingdom of grace, is the kingdom that we must experience in anticipation of that kingdom of glory. I want to go back to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 again, and again focus in on this key word that I've been referring to several times, the word covenant. Because in Daniel 9 verse 27, uh, the, the angel Gabriel says to Daniel that he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, referring to the Messiah, would confirm a covenant with many for one week, uh, for, uh, many for one week. but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And we've talked about the, the principle of the covenant already. The covenant is the relationship that God wants with his people. And guess what? Nothing has changed. This is still what he wants with his people today, with you and with me. Because as the gospel has gone into the uttermost parts of the world, the very invitation that has been given to the Jews uh, is the very same invitation that has been given to all nations today. And it is the invitation to become, to become one with Christ, to enter into the covenant relationship with Jesus, to say yes to his promises, to say yes to the sacrifice that he has wrought on our behalf. And this is what I find so beautiful when I read the New Testament that whenever Jesus talks about his kingdom, within the teaching of the kingdom uh, is, is, is that very message of the covenant. It's the invitation to belong to him. And I want to give, uh, I want to go to this passage as we, as we wrap up our study tonight, because this has been such an encouragement to me. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus tells a parable, which is an illustrative story. And I think that this illustrative story, this, this short parable, it really summarizes this whole relationship of this covenant that God wants with us. And Jesus tells the following story in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that is hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that Field. Now, we're living in 2019 in a very different culture, a very different setting. So perhaps we need to, you know, at first glance, we can wonder what this is all about. But it's interesting because in the days of Jesus, it was not uncommon to actually discover valuable objects uh, in the earth because they didn't have banks where they could, you know, bring their money or they didn't have uh, places where they could secure their valuable things. And so oftentimes they would put their valuable things or their treasures under the earth. And it was a society where many people would, you know, would, would, would grow their crops to earn a living and to sustain their families. And so this was not an uncommon picture that Jesus is describing here. There's a man that is working in a field. It's not his field. He's borrowing the field in order to grow his crops. And he's working in the field. And then suddenly something happens. As he's digging away, he, he discovers a treasure. And, and when he discovers the treasure, what does he do? He, he covers it up and he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy that field. Because he realizes this, when I purchase that field, then I am the owner of what's in the field. And I know that in the field, there's a treasure. And so he goes home, he sells everything that he has in order to buy that field. Now at this point, just think about this, how crazy must that have looked like for his friends that didn't know about the treasure? So he's selling everything and they're thinking, uh, have you lost it? Like what's wrong with you? Like you're just gonna buy an empty, ugly field? 
and you're selling everything that you have to, to buy that field? It must have looked crazy from the outside. But the man knew that by selling everything that he had, he would gain much, much more. There's a treasure in the field. And once he purchases that field, now he can uncover that treasure again. And that treasure is more valuable than anything he ever owned. And what Jesus is saying here is that the gospel is like that treasure. The gospel is like that treasure. So when we go through life and we discover the treasure, the question is, are we willing to give up whatever it takes in order to obtain that treasure? And when we do so, uh, how, how, what, what does this look like? You know, the man, it says that he was filled with joy. With joy, he sold everything that he had because the great joy that he had found in, the, in, in that treasure, in, that, in the gospel, is of greater value than any, anything he ever had. And I believe that this is a beautiful, beautiful presentation of simple presentation in this parable of our experience when we meet Jesus. Because when we meet Jesus, the question is, what will we do? What are we willing to give up in order to obtain him? And what do we see when we look at Jesus? Do we see a treasure? Do we see something that is valuable, more valuable than anything and everything that we have? I like the way that David wrote it in Psalm 27 and verse 4. He says the following, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. He says one thing, one thing I've desired, and that is I want to behold the beauty of God. And, and when we come to that point in our life where we really see who Jesus is and what he has done for us and the covenant relationship that he wants for us, you know what? We'll start seeing this as the greatest treasure. We will have discovered something that is more valuable than anything else in our life. And when we see the value of the treasure, oh, we will desire to behold it, to behold that beauty. That will be our one focus in life. It will be the greatest focus. It will, be, it will be, become more important than anything else. And you know, it's my prayer that that will be our experience, that as we search the scriptures, that we will find the treasure right there. Because you know what? We can, we can easily fall into the very, same, um, uh, the, 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 the very same problem that the Jewish nation had, and that was that they had the scriptures, but they, couldn't, they, didn't, find, they didn't see the treasure. They had the Old Testament scriptures, and the Messiah was all through there, but they didn't recognize him when he came. And the same can happen to us. We have the Bible, we have the Old and the New Testament, but, but the question is, have we found the treasure? Have we discovered the value of the gospel? You know, you can also look at it like this, that the field can also be a representation of the church. And sometimes we, 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 we might go through, we might be in a church or we might be in a, in a congregation of believers, but, but the question is, have we found uh, the gospel? Have we found the treasure? Because, because if we don't find the treasure, then guess what will happen? We will find other things that are more valuable that are other places. And we'll start looking over there and, and looking over there and, and, and the treasures will be everywhere else. But, but God is saying, you know, there's a treasure right here and the treasure is Jesus Christ. In John chapter three and verse three, Jesus said to, the, to Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders so in those days, he said, um, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so in order for us to, 
recognize the treasure of the gospel and to appreciate it for its value, what needs to happen? We need to be born again. We need to be born again by the Spirit of God. You know, when you, when you, look, at the, when you look at the Bible, the Bible actually describes only two types of people, and that is those that are spiritually alive and those that are spiritually dead. Either we are spiritually dead and we don't perceive the things of God, or we have been awakened by the Spirit and we can see the things that pertain to God's kingdom. And I believe that with, 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 all, um, with all the interest um, that, that, that God is placing in your heart for the Bible, He is awakening you in order to see the value of the treasure in the gospel. Amen? And, and, and when we are spiritually alive, we will be turned to the things of God. And you know, this reminds me again that we are in the middle of a battle between good and evil. We are talking here about the war of thrones. And do you know that there's an enemy that is trying to blind us so that we don't see the value of the gospel, so that we don't discover the treasure in Jesus? As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it puts it like this. Whose minds the God of this age has what? has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. What does God want to do? He wants to shine on us. How does he shine on us? Through his word. And he wants us to discover that treasure, the gospel. But there's someone else in this battle. There's a war of thrones that is going on. There is an enemy in the picture. And what is the enemy doing? He's seeking to blind us so that we don't find that treasure, so that we, don't, that we don't discover the beauty of the covenant that God wants us to enter. And so the question really is, have you discovered the treasure? Have you discovered the gospel? The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. What do you see when you look at the cross? What do you see when you look at Jesus? Do you see that he has died in your place? Do you see that he wants to enter into a friendship and covenant with you? And if so, Will you receive him into your heart so that that covenant can become a beautiful friendship? I want to close with this, um, uh, this, this, this um, uh, text that was written by uh, James Francis uh, about Jesus. And, and he writes this, it's, it's, it's like a kind of an essay uh, about the life of Jesus. And I think it's very well written. So I want to end with this. Take notice what he writes. He says, he, Jesus, was born in an obscure village the son of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he became a wandering preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was executed by the state. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the center, central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Amen? Think about it. Jesus, who was he? What did he do by all the 
all the human standards of success, many people would say he's a failure. And yet we see how so many lives have been transformed by their faith in what he did for them. And I'm just happy that we can be among that number that say, you know what? Yes, he is the central figure of my life. He is the very one that I want to belong to. He is the treasure that I've found. He is the one that I want to enter into a covenant with. And he is my best friend. And soon, very soon, he's going to come again and take me home. Amen? Amen. At this time, before we leave, I want to just invite the, um, we have a couple of people that are going to hand you out a little card here. Because in the course of this seminar that we're, that we're in together, uh, I want to just, you know, at certain points within the seminar, I want to give you the opportunity to, to respond to some of the things that we're learning, some of the things that we're going over. And uh, so you'll just be uh, handed out a card at this time. And uh, it's a simple card with, um, that we're going to just go through together where you have the opportunity to respond to some of the things that we've been learning, some of the things that we've been discovering together. And uh, for me, it's been a great joy already. We're, we're four presentations into this series. Uh, we still have a good number of presentations to go. But at this time, you know, as we've talked tonight about the ultimate king, about Jesus Christ, and we've talked about the treasure that we find in the gospel, I just want to give you this opportunity to respond um, in this way by filling out this card. So on this card... Uh, it says, I want to thank God from the bottom of my heart for his wonderful gift of love. And if you can say that tonight, you can just check off that first box there. You say, you know what? I really want to thank God from the bottom of my heart for his wonderful gift of love. You know, you see what he has done for you. You, you, you appreciate the value of the gospel. You can just check off that box tonight. Secondly, it says, I want to accept Jesus as my Savior from all my sins today. If that's something that you want to say yes to, you can check off that box as well. You know, and, and, and I'm sure that many of you, you've already made that decision, but you can just reconfirm your decision tonight and say, yes, this is something maybe you've chosen years ago, but you can say tonight again, yes, this is what I want. I want to accept Jesus as my Savior from all my sins. And then finally, I want to surrender my life to him so that he can live in me through his spirit. If that's your desire tonight, you can check that third box as well. It's our prayer that throughout this seminar, we not only learn theory about prophecy, which is very interesting, but that we also are drawn closer to Jesus through this event. Amen? And tonight we've looked at some incredible prophecies and specifically the prophecy of Daniel 9 that so accurately predicted the coming of Jesus. And it's a beautiful prophecy. It's an accurate prophecy. But more than just understanding the prophecy and the time periods and the dates, we can say yes to a covenant relationship. Amen? Because that's really what it's all about. So thank you for filling out the card. And uh, we'll have some people um, pick it up in just a moment. And from my side, I just want to invite you to come back tomorrow evening. We're going to continue our journey. And our subject for tomorrow is the map to the throne room. And, uh, you know, I was, I was just working over this presentation a little bit today, and I, I just got really excited and uh, can't wait to present it. So I hope that you come back tomorrow as we continue our journey in prophecy. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being with us this evening. I want to thank you for your blessings. 
I want to thank you for your prophetic word. And we want to, above all, thank you for your covenant relationship. And I pray that every single one of us here today may find the treasure of the gospel and that we'll be willing to give up whatever it takes to obtain that treasure. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and all that you're doing for us. For we ask these things in your beautiful name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.